Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Welcome to New Books in Medicine on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Monique Dufour. Thanks for listening. My interview with Matthew Heaton about his new book, Black Skin, White Coats, Nigerian Psychiatrists, Decolonization, and the Globalization of Psychiatry, made me think yet again that the history of medicine is by no means only medical. Now, in a lot of ways, that's not surprising, right? Because what it means to be sick or to be well, what it means to cure someone or to go through the process of healing, these are fundamental questions about what it means to be human, and they cut to our visions of the good life. Um, But more than that, I think that Matt's book, helps us to see that in order to understand and to narrate questions about the history and the culture of medicine require us to deeply contextualize those experiences. So to tell the story that he does in Black Skin, White Coats, Matt relies on and displays his understanding of African history, of post-colonialism, of globalization, cross-cultural contact, of the history of science and scientific networks, I go on. 
I could go on, but I, I don't want to intimidate the listeners. This is not a heavy book in any way. And I think that speaks to not only Matt's um, knowledge, but his craft as a writer, because he weaves these things together in the story in a way that's integral to the story that he tells and makes contributions to multiple disciplines, but does so in a voice and in a narrative that's accessible to us as readers. We at New Books in Medicine and at the New Books Network choose books that we admire and that we like. And so um, I don't know why I'm surprised consistently when the authors that I interview turn out to be such magnificent talkers as well. But yet again, Matt Heaton um, comes through, and I think that you'll enjoy listening to him um, talk about this wonderful book as well. Um, finally, I wanted to uh, mention that this book is published by Ohio University Press in their really excellent series, The New African Histories. And it's so nice to see academic presses like this one making books available in paperback to we readers who want access to scholarly books and want to own them for ourselves. Um, and it's nice that they're affordable and accessible. So if you enjoy his interview, um, I really do encourage you to go out and get a copy for yourself because this book is well worth a read. I hope you enjoy our interview. Welcome to New Books in Medicine on the New Books Network. I'm Monique Dufour. Our guest today is Matthew Heaton, Associate Professor of History at Virginia Tech. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks very much for having me. Matt's book, uh, Black Skin, White Coats, Nigerian Psychiatrists, Decolonization, and the Globalization of Psychiatry, was published in 2013 by Ohio University Press. It's part of its excellent book series, New African History. Black Skin, White Coats is available in paperback. Um, Matt, to get us started and to help our listeners get acquainted with you, could you talk a little bit about how you would describe your scholarly areas of work as a historian and as a writer? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm trained uh, in African history. That's the the program I went through as a PhD student at the University of Texas. So uh, my general area of interest from the beginning has always been focusing on uh, African uh, agents, African responses, African actions, uh, both in local and in global environments. Um, so I, I really come at these issues of health, illness, uh, disease, uh, psychiatry, uh, from the perspective of someone who's trained more from an Africanist area studies history program than from a history of medicine uh, in the sort of traditional sense. Um, but I think that the, the background in African history allows for really interesting uh, new perspectives on the history of health, illness, and medicine by incorporating these African agents into these broader narratives about uh, those issues. And as the title of the book indicates, I'm also interested in uh, broader notions of what it means to to have a global history, what it means to think about uh, a history of globalization. And so this work is really uh, indicative of my interest in uh, making sure that we insert in more equitable ways a broad-based perspective on global actors as well. These Nigerian psychiatrists that I'm talking about in this book, uh, we're certainly working in Nigeria, but the ideas that they're, that they're talking about, the networks that they're working in, uh, certainly expand beyond Nigeria uh, to, to be uh, more uh, influential at a, at a sort of global level. And so that's really what my interest is as a historian. How do we take uh, African history 
make it more relevant to people who are interested in history outside of Africa? How do we globalize African history? Uh, and I think that, that the history of health, disease, and medicine is a very important uh, field through which we can start to have these conversations to uh, be more incorporative and more equitable in, in where uh, the sort of meta narratives come from. We'll talk more in detail about the book um, in a few minutes, but I'm wondering, this is a lot to learn in order to develop a project like this that has so many dimensions. How did you develop your interests and expertise in this area, and how did you get to looking at, at um, African history in connection to medicine itself? Yeah, um, well, I... I had started out, uh, you know, not really knowing what my research interest was going to be other than that I was interested in African history and specifically history of Nigeria, um, which developed sort of more circumstantially, serendipitously through the relationships that I, that I made uh, early in my uh, graduate training. Uh, when I first went to Nigeria for field work, I had actually uh, intended to write uh, something on the history of witchcraft. Um, and for a variety of reasons, that research wasn't uh, going as smoothly as I had hoped it would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found these these case files in the Nigerian National Archives in Ibadan that dealt with the uh, the uh, repatriation of Nigerian mental patients during the colonial period, and I and I immediately knew that this was something that had a, a potential to provide a fresh story. We don't really think or talk a lot about. Uh, people who travel out of Africa in sort of the post-slave trade era, frankly. Uh, so I knew that there was an angle there. And because I had been interested in these issues of witchcraft um, and and uh, generally histories of medicine, I knew that, you know, there was a way to talk about the psychology uh, behind the, the repatriation files that we'll talk about more later Um through through engaging with that uh, that uh, history of medicine stream in Africanist history. Would you say that your project kind of found you? I mean, I think that I hear oh, this. Yeah. yeah, I hear this so many times where we work with our students as they're working on dissertations and they think the topics arrive fully formed, but it's it's definitely a process of evolution as yeah. as you're kind of explaining. Oh, absolutely right, and and frankly, uh, you know, people that I consider my generation of scholars and, and, you know, my friends and colleagues, uh, you know, that seems to be the more common story, frankly. Um, by the time, you know, you've done this for several years, you, you know, you have an idea, you have to be able to articulate uh, something for the purposes of funding proposals and, uh, and those types of things. But, you know, getting into the field and really uh, finding the sources that you're going to work with and getting the sort of nuanced perspective on these things, that's where you're going to end up making the contribution ultimately. Uh, and that's all in a lot of ways that, you know, that's about putting yourself in a position to uh, to allow the new interesting thing to happen, right? Um, if, yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. The project found me and um, and it partly found me uh, through a willingness to be open to ideas that were different than the ones that that I had, you know, sort of pigeonholed myself into looking for, you know, initially. Since this book came from a dissertation, what did you learn in the process about taking a dissertation to a book? And that, that that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, there's a there are different layers and levels of approaching that. One is sort of the notion of, you know what should a book be trying to accomplish versus what a dissertation is trying to accomplish. And I think that, you know, the dissertation was trying to please five very specific people, obviously. Um, 
um, and to illustrate a competency in the disciplinary background, etc. But I think a book obviously should be doing something a little bit different than that. It should be uh, trying to reach a slightly broader audience at the very least. Um, and, uh, you know, making some, some arguments that help to move a field forward uh, at least as much, if not more so, than sort of indicating the individual author's competencies. Um, and so that was one of the things that I, that I knew immediately that I wanted to do with this manuscript. As I said, the dissertation was just about these repatriated uh, Nigerian mental patients. That was pretty narrow mm -hmm. when it came down to it for a dissertation, and it didn't seem like something really that in and of itself, much more than the five people on my dissertation mm -hmm. committee were probably going to be very interested in, in reading that. And so it partly becomes a, a calculus of figuring out how can you, can you write something that's uh, more marketable and that does more useful things for more people. Um, but, of course, the second part of that, of course, is that the dissertation raises a whole host of other questions that you don't necessarily have the time or the resources to address uh, in the process of trying to write a dissertation and complete a degree and, and move on with a career. So uh, the, the, the having the sort of, in some ways, flexibility to turn a dissertation into a manuscript was sort of liberating, uh, also, of course, being on the the, the timetable of doing this in a tenure track position is, is a little bit daunting, but um, at the same time, it did allow me to address some of the more significant, broader issues that I thought the the repatriation of Nigerian mental patients raised, including you know what is happening in the way that uh, not just psychiatrists in Nigeria or Africa, but more globally, are thinking about the relationship between uh, issues of culture and migration. And, uh, and the notions of psychological normality, whatever that is. Right. I, um, right. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, I should tell our listeners that uh, Matt really succeeds in broadening the audience for his dissertation topic to more than five people. I was right from the start um, very engaged by your book. And to dive into it, um, you begin the book in 1961 with the story of the first Pan-African Psychiatric Conference in Nigeria. I was immediately hooked. Um, can you tell me a little bit about this story and why you begin the book with it? Yeah, so the first uh, Pan-African Psychiatric Conference takes place in, in November 1961 in, uh, in and around Abiokuta, Nigeria, southwestern Nigeria. And what happens at this conference is that uh, a, a large number, several dozen uh, psychiatric experts from uh, Nigeria, from Africa more broadly, and from around the world come together in this place to hold a conference where they're really talking about, you know, what's happening to the way that we think about these relationships that I just mentioned between uh, notions of race and culture, uh, psychological normality, as it were, and uh, causes and consequences of mental illness. And I started the book with this because I really saw this conference as being very much a microcosm for what's happening in, in psychiatric discourses more broadly at this time. Uh, these the, the members of this conference include uh, Thomas Lambeau, who I'm sure we're going to talk about mm -hmm. uh, at great length uh, going forward here, who's uh, the first Nigerian uh, to earn a medical specialty in psychiatry uh, and begin practicing in the late 1950s in Nigeria. Uh, but it also included uh, other African psychiatrists, of which there were a few at the time, it included J.C. Carruthers, a sort of infamous colonial psychiatrist who had 
propagated many of the sort of more heinous ideas about the relationship between a race and sort of African inferiority, psychological inferiority in the colonial context. And it also included some, some burgeoning uh, transcultural psychiatrists uh, uh, from Europe and, and uh, the United States, guys like uh, Alexander Layton, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they were talking about is, you know, we need to figure out a way to change uh, the way we talk about these relationships between race, culture, and mental illness. And what these people are really talking about is moving towards a more universalistic model where we don't see race and culture necessarily as innately uh, making people innately psychologically different, but talking about people as being innately psychologically the same. This is happening at the conference. Uh, But I think it's really instructive that this is happening in 1961, right? Because 1961, this is one year after Nigeria becomes an independent country. Uh, It's broken away from the British Empire. Many, many other countries in Africa and Asia have done so or are doing so at this exact moment. So the geopolitical landscape is changing pretty significantly. And those changes in the geopolitical landscape, uh, I argue, are sort of making it possible or certainly contributing to the context within which uh, other types of hierarchical understandings of humanity uh, are are being reshaped. Uh, and the conference really uh, indicates how these things are happening, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you start here in 1961. Could you just give us a little preview about the larger narrative arc of the story, just maybe the chronology that you cover and the general sweep of it? In the entire book? Yeah, or, just so yeah. our listeners can get a sense of the whole as we start to get into the more specific. Yeah, so the book, uh, the book really covers uh, mostly the 20th century, the, from, from the first decade of the 20th century up until I think the latest stuff I talk about at any point is really in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, getting more recent than that becomes ever more tricky, right, for historians. Um, <laughs> but... Um, so what I start with is, is, is sort of a basic framework understanding of what colonial psychiatry is doing. And, and I know that that's you know, only one place that you could start talking about histories of psychiatry in, in sort of either African context or global context. Uh, so I start with the colonial context for a couple of reasons here. Uh, one of them is because I think um, this is really a, a, you know, a, a game-changing moment in terms of how the world is politically oriented, and it has pretty significant consequences for the capacity of something like a, a psychiatric discourse to spread around the world. So it's at this time that we start to see uh, many uh, European psychiatrists and armchair psychiatrists talking about uh, you know, how people relate to each other psychologically? What are the sort of hierarchies? Should there be hierarchies? Of course, Europeans decide there should be at this time. Uh, But there's also practical implications behind it, too, because as European powers start to colonize uh, parts of Africa and Asia, they then also become sort of responsible for practicing psychiatry in these places uh, to to a very minimal extent. And so one of the the discourses that emerges is basically how much psychiatry should be operational in uh, European colonies. Ultimately, they decide very little for for ideological reasons that we can get into uh, later. So I think that that's one important thing, right, because the the, the colonial context creates a space within which 
these more universal discussions about the nature of human psychology are happening. The second thing that I think is really important about the colonial context for how the book flows out is that so many of the uh, psychiatrists in Nigeria that I'm talking about from the 50s, 60s, 70s on, you know, they're not operating in a bubble. They are uh, products of historical context and legacies themselves. And much of what they're talking about is, in fact, kind of a counter a counter narrative or a counter argument to uh, the, the preceding knowledge about African psychology that had been created largely in those colonial uh, political and ideological constructs. So I start there uh, in the first chapter. We then move into the 1950s with the, uh, with the founding of Aro Hospital in southwestern Nigeria and uh, Thomas Lambeau, the first Nigerian psychiatrist, taking up the reins uh, of that first uh, modern mental hospital in Nigeria in the 1950s. Uh, and talk about the uh, the ways that he is. I don't know if radically is the right word, but certainly more uh, more uh, energetically transforming the way psychiatry is being practiced in Nigeria at this time. Uh, he's combating a lot of the sort of racist under underlying notions within colonial psychiatry, and he's also embarking on a much more hands on uh, incorporative clinical practice in Nigeria as well. Uh, far over and above what had ever previously existed in the earlier colonial period. Uh, so that sort of sets up a, a broad uh, historical uh, historical framework. The next part of the book then goes into some case studies where we talk about the, the uh, repatriation of Nigerian mental patients to talk about some specific psychiatric disorders and how their uh, uh, understandings change pretty significantly over time, schizophrenia. Uh, depression and what's called brain fag syndrome. There's an entire chapter then where we talk about uh, the relationship of Nigerian psychiatrists to um, to traditional healers, right? Mm-hmm. Those sort of local authorities on psychological normality and abnormality in Nigeria, uh, even to till today. Mm-hmm. And then the last chapter deals with uh, what happens in the context of the development of psychopharmaceutical drugs that are at least purported to have sort of universal implications for how psychiatry is treated as a biological phenomenon, mm-hmm. right, uh, largely from the 1950s. And this is the material that goes more into the 1980s at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. So let's start talking a little bit more about the setup um, with um, you start with the colonial institutions and networks of what you call ethno psychotherapy. Why do you use that word, by the way, ethno psychotherapy? It's a word that's used at the time mm-hmm. um, to describe the ways that uh, Europeans are seeing uh, seeing psychology and psychiatry in cultural contexts. Right. Uh, the The question is, as I say in the first chapter, they're they're not really questioning whether culture and race have an effect on people's uh, 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 psychology, they're coming at it from the perspective of, of course it does, why and how, mm-hmm. right? Uh, why are, why do Africans appear psychologically the way we perceive them to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a term that's used at the time to describe that. At the same time, it's a little bit complicated because what's meant by ethnopsychiatry really in the African context largely breaks down to a racial binary, Right. The uh, the ethno essentially means African. Right. Um, So there's not a whole lot of work that's being done to compare, say, uh, Maasai with Yoruba or Zulu with, Uh uh, you know, with with Luo or whatever you want, whatever ethnic uh, markers you want to use. When they say ethno psychiatry, what they really mean is 
you know, this sort of lumped together Africanness, which is distinguishable primarily by its perceived differences from a lumped together Europeanness or whiteness or whatever else. So in cha- I want to turn to chapter two, and maybe we can go back to chapter one a little bit to mm-hmm. build a little bit of context. But um, you turn to the period of decolonizing psychiatric institutions, and you tell the story primarily through the central figure of Thomas Lambeau. Mm-hmm. Um, could you say a little bit about how Lambeau's story helps us to understand this process in the 1950s? And 60s. Yeah, Lambo. Uh, Lambo's an, an extremely interesting and important figure um, for the history of psychiatry in Nigeria and and Africa generally, and I would argue in in uh, important ways globally. Right? I mean, he he has a, an impact outside of Nigeria and Africa, certainly. So Thomas Lambo, as I've mentioned a couple of times already, is the first Nigerian person to. Uh, to earn a medical specialty in psychiatry. Uh, he was raised in Abiokuta in southwestern Nigeria. He went to missionary schools in this, in this area, uh, matriculated on uh, to university at, at Birmingham in the UK, uh, did a medical specialty uh, there, and then did a psychiatric specialty at the Maudsley Hospital in, uh, in London before coming back in 1954 to take over the reins of the first modern mental hospital in Nigeria called uh, Aro, Aro Mental Hospital, uh, which was created right about the same time, 1954. In fact, at the time that Lambeau became the, the medical superintendent of Aro Hospital, it wasn't even completely built yet. Uh, so he was sort of overseeing the completion of the facility itself at the same time that he was starting to undertake clinical practice there. Lambeau's an important figure because he represents, in a lot of ways, uh, the... Uh, the transitions that are happening in the 1950s and 1960s. They go back older than this, but Lambeau is certainly a member of this uh, European-educated elite uh, in Nigeria. It goes back a long time. You know, sort of West African cosmopolitanism is a longstanding stream. But uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, it has significant political implications in the processes of decolonization and transferring uh, independence. So Lambeau becomes a psychiatrist, Who's working in Nigeria, and in the process of working in Nigeria, he's doing things right that the colonial government never even really considered doing. Mm-hmm. Actually, providing sort of modern uh, psychiatric practice, and in so doing, he's able to make a couple of really important points. One is uh, colonial psychiatry got a lot of things very wrong about Africans and uh, particularly Nigerians from his perspective, partly because they weren't particularly invested in and practicing psychiatry in this region. So that led to all kinds of, of, of wrong assumptions, very bad science in his perspective. Uh, at the same time, uh, he's also very much illustrating what the value of indigenous leadership is in the context of decolonization and independence. He's proving that, one, of course, Africans are not intellectually, psychologically, professionally inferior to Europeans. He's practicing on the highest levels, right? Uh, what is the point of colonialism uh, if we have Africans who can do these things? And as he's illustrating, uh, do them better than the colonial governments themselves had. So he becomes sort of not just a, a scientific medical figure. He is a political figure in a lot of ways in Nigeria. He is an example of, of the good things that are coming out of decolonization and independence for Nigeria. Right? And he was, he, he was very conscious of this, very conscious of this. Um, 
worked alongside politicians at the first Pan-African Psychiatric Conference that we talked about earlier, right? Yeah, so he had deliberately invited uh, a number of important politicians to the first Pan-African Psychiatric Conference, maybe most notably uh, the Prime Minister of the Federation of Nigeria, Cyril Haji Tafawa Balewa, made an appearance at this conference. So the, so Lambeau knew these people. He was involved with these people. They certainly saw him as an asset in, in sort of the first republic government in the 1960s. And he went on to have a very long uh, and, and dig, distinguished career in global public health. He had ultimately left Aro in the late 60s to become the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Baden, uh, a university that had been founded in the late 40s as the first degree-granting institution in Nigeria, um, and which continued to grow over the 50s and 60s during the decolonization process. He was later the vice chancellor of that university before he went on to uh, basically a second career in global public health at the World Health Organization, where he ultimately became a deputy director general throughout most of the 70s and 80s. Um, so he was he was a very important figure for for sort of representing this transformation uh, of of psychiatric practice in Nigeria, in Africa, and to a certain extent, the world uh, during this era. Mm-hmm. And um, this kind of brings me to a more conceptual question before we go to the cases that you take up in the book, mm-hmm. um, that um, the relationship between the local and the global is just central to this book. And it's something that you are so careful about navigating. And in what ways is this book um, specific to Nigeria? And in what ways can it be said that it is representative of more widespread issues and changes? Like what should or shouldn't we extrapolate? And what is incumbent upon us in this story to um, attend to the local and why? Yeah, this is – wow, this is a huge question. Okay, yeah. this might be one of the ones where I, where I go for 10 or 12 minutes. <laughs> it um, seems so important to the way you <laughs> conceived of the book. Yeah, um, so, yeah, what should we or shouldn't we extrapolate from the relationship between the local and the global? And I think I would throw the universal into that uh-huh. right, to the extent that the universal is supposed to have a global implication. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think what we shouldn't extrapolate is the notion – well, I'm going to say several things that yeah, we shouldn't extrapolate. But one of the things we shouldn't extrapolate is that guys like Lambo, a Sunni – and other psychiatrists who are working in this new transcultural framework of trying to understand uh, psychological normality as a universal process, we shouldn't assume that they got it right. Um, I, I think that this is, and one of the things, like you say, that I'm careful about in this book is trying to locate that discourse within its historical uh, political and social context, right? This is a an argument that gets made in the 50s and 60s because it's a very attractive argument at this time, right? It's overcoming what are perceived as clear inadequacies in the scholarship and the medicine that has come before this. Uh, it is addressing a new world order that is presumably not going to be uh, based on sort of racial and cultural hierarchies that had, that had uh, preceded its very attractive model. Uh, and it does do some good things, but it doesn't explain everything, right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, there are a lot of, of sort of blurred edges, frayed edges, where uh, notions of culture and individuality and uh, social relations, all of these things, the differences of them across space still have pretty significant salient meaning for a lot of people. And this is where the book sort of ends in the 70s and 80s, talking about how this universalistic model gets very frayed and battered about the edges uh, to the extent that it's it's not entirely uh, 
accepted the way it was in the 50s and 60s. Um, one thing, though, that I do think we absolutely should extrapolate. Um, wow, I said absolutely. I don't know. If I mean, uh, but we should, <laughs> we, should, we should extrapolate from this is the extent to which psychiatry does become uh, a sort of global enterprise in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, and when we say it becomes a global enterprise, I think we need to be careful in not ascribing the global to the Western, right? That what that psychiatry in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is not the sort of basala model of development of scientific knowledge in a particular space, and it's spreading out to the rest of the world as sort of, sort of uh, a unipolar thing or something, right? What is happening is that knowledge and information is coming from a whole variety of different places, and it's circulating in extraordinarily complex ways, and that a lot of the places this knowledge is coming from uh, are, is from sort of non-Western environments, places like Nigeria, places like if we, we'll talk about the, the IPSS in a few minutes, but right, the, the information for the International Pilot Study of Schizophrenia is coming from around the world, literally around the world. Uh, and so to ascribe the sort of binary model of Western science spreading out to the rest of the world is uh, reductive, right, at best. What we see here are people from around the world grappling with sort of the basic notions of Western science, but transforming them pretty significantly and then uh, creating a feedback loop uh, into the rest of the world where that new knowledge is then uh, transforming the way that people in other parts of the world are seeing those older concepts. That's happening in Nigeria, and that's happening in a lot of other places at this time, right? Uh, Lambo is not the only psychiatrist practicing in Africa. He's not the only one practicing in the non-West, right? These same types of decolonizing practices are occurring in India. I've done a little bit of research on that throughout Southeast Asia, in Latin America, and of course in a variety of different socioeconomic groups within Western countries as well, right? So that we're getting a much more comprehensive uh, uh, perspective on how people actually think and behave, and that is actually affecting some of the core baseline uh, concepts of the discipline itself. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, speaking of how ideas move along with people, um, let's turn to Chapter 3 and um, what I'd like to ask you is what are some of the international dimensions of decolonizing psychiatry that you explore through the experiences of Nigerians who migrated to the UK since the 1950s? Yeah, so chapter three, as I mentioned, this is the one that, that sort of grew out of the dissertation. It's actually a smaller sort of condensing of, the, of my dissertation. And what's interesting about this chapter, I think, that, that really has informed the way the entire book came together is this notion that we can't treat the history of psychiatry as the sort of uh, transition from an imperial psychiatry to a bunch of different little national psychiatries, right? Um, this is one of the things that, that, for example, Warwick Anderson has talked about as being sort of problematic in the history of medicine, that, that we allow it to follow this sort of teleological narrative of the sort of emergence of the nation state. And then we just tell these confined national medical histories, right? Um, And this is an example of how that becomes problematic, right? Because what do you do with the people who are crossing those national boundaries? What do you do when you have to bring bring, uh, to bear knowledge uh, of people who are coming from different places who exist in a variety of different places and can't necessarily... uh, fit those national molds. And so this is what's happening with these uh, Nigerians, particularly in the 50s and 60s, 
who are going abroad and and uh, develop mental illnesses. So what the chapter argues is that you see these I have dozens and dozens of cases of these uh, of Nigerians who went abroad mostly for study, right? They're going to the UK or maybe Canada, a couple to the US, uh, mostly to study at this time because as we've talked about there's not a whole lot of opportunity for higher education in West Africa in the 50s and 60s. So they go abroad uh, they have psychological uh, issues while they're abroad, and then the question becomes: Well, what do you what do you do with people when they have a mental breakdown outside of their sort of local environment? There's a lot of ways that you could approach this question, right? Uh, versus, you know, you know, why are they having these psychological problems? Is it a, is it a sort of an innate function of their personality that they brought with them when they traveled? Is it the result of uh, social pressures and and problems in the, the sort of place of, of destination? Um, is it some combination of these things? These are very difficult things to tease out. So what the chapter does is look at how these questions were addressed by, uh, by different groups in the 50s and 60s. And what it largely argues is that most of these cases that I have files for, the reason I have files for them is because they were, uh, they were proposed for repatriation, and so they're filed and became public record in Nigeria. Uh-huh. Um, so it's not a comprehensive list necessarily of every Nigerian who ever suffered a, a psychological problem uh, in the UK or anywhere else. Right? Um, but these these cases, they were proposed for repatriation. And if you read through the files, you look at what the explanations were for repatriation. Um, so it might be intuitive to think that uh, the, that you know this this would all be about issues of citizenship and who has legal right to exist in a particular space. But throughout most of this period, you know, Nigerians have a right of residency in the UK and really anywhere else in the British Empire. It's not a, a matter of immigration. It's a matter of immigration in the United States for the few people who are flown back from there. But mostly, uh, these Nigerians have total right of residency in the, United, in the United Kingdom. You can't just repatriate them because they're not uh, British. They, they, in legal terms, they actually are. So what, what's what's perpetuating this repatriation problem, right? Uh, it's really centrally conceived around what's supposed to be in the medical best interests of these patients. And so the case files repeatedly make claims that it would be in the patient's best interest to be returned home. Uh, and underlying that are a whole host of, of uh, arguments about racial and cultural difference, right? And the primary one being that these Nigerians, because they come from West Africa, which is perceived in the 50s to be a more primitive culture, right, a more backwards place. Uh, these people are from cultures that are, are uh, sort of simple and, uh, and, and not very sophisticated. When those folks go to a place like the United Kingdom, right, then they just can't handle it, right? Uh, and so the, the sort of hyper-modernity of, of the U.K. is overwhelming to them. Uh, trying to actually earn a degree uh, in the sort of Western education sense is is extra difficult for Africans who have a sort of psychological and intellectual uh, uh, inferiority within sort of racist colonial discourses. So returning them home is seen to be as the only likely way that they're going to get better, mm-hmm. right? They have to go back to a culture that they're familiar with, that they understand, and that uh, that they can function within, right? So that's, that's what many of these case files say. And this became a problem in the 50s and early 60s, uh, 
newspaper reports of this happening and how this is sort of indicative of crises of modernity and decolonization and what's going on with these West Africans. Uh, so Lambeau actually takes up this issue in the late 50s, and he wrote a report on these repatriation problems, and he comes to a pretty different conclusion, right? He's not denying that many uh, Nigerians go abroad, particularly to the UK, and suffer psychological uh, breakdowns. He has a very different answer for why that's happening, right? And so from his perspective, there's a whole host of, of, of social stressors that are particular to Nigerian migrants in the UK, uh, that don't have anything particularly to do with their cultural background, but have to do with uh, with the the position of Nigeria within sort of this colonial uh, post imperial context and the globalizing uh, world that these Nigerians are trying to to work within. So he points out things like experiences of racism that Nigerians have in the UK. He points out things like uh, extreme poverty that Nigerian immigrants uh, are facing in. Uh, in the UK, you know, the, the financing of these degrees can be very, very uh, difficult and stressful for people. He points to the extraordinary pressures on Nigerian students to succeed, right? They're often the only person in their family going to school. Uh, this is not just about their individual success. It's about their the long-term sort of uh, social climbing of their family, right? And so, Lambeau comes to a very different conclusion about the value of repatriation. He says if you're really concerned about the mental health of these patients, they need to be well-treated in the U.K. Uh, they need, there needs to be significantly increased communication between the U.K. and Nigeria. There needs to be training for students about what to expect when they go to the U.K. Uh, there needs to be sort of a, a – he even makes the argument, right, that, that – sort of uh, media representing Africa as sort of tribal and backwards and all these things needs to be limited because that's contributing to the way that, that Britons treat Nigerian immigrants, etc. So it becomes a much broader social issue uh, in a very transnational context for Lambeau. Um, again, sort of representing this transition uh, from a colonial psychiatry of marginalized Africans to a perceived uh, change in the geopolitical order in which Africans are going to be a much uh, play a much bigger role. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to chapter four. Um, so, how did Nigerian psychiatrists confront and engage with culture-bound diagnoses and disease categories? Yeah, this is this is a good question, and this is another one where the history sort of matters because it kind of changes over mm-hmm. time. Uh, and and depending on what what the the sort of value of particular explanations are at a given time, uh, so the chapter four discusses the sort of three different psychological disorders, two of which are presumed to be more or less universal: uh, depression and, and schizophrenia, and then this third one called brain fag syndrome, which is as you're suggesting is is deemed to be culture bound, at least in the '60s, mm-hmm. uh, to to Nigeria. Um. And so, as I've mentioned before, right, many of these psychiatrists, Lambeau and others working from the 50s and 60s as transcultural psychiatrists, are much more interested in the notion that psychological uh, 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 disorder is a sort of universal set of categories. But it's also at this time that you get discourses about culture-bound syndromes uh, coming mostly not actually out of Africa, mostly uh, out of North America and Southeast Asia, uh, disorders like amok, for example, which has been recognized for a long time, gets classified as a culture-bound disorder to 
to Southeast Asia, uh, uh, things like Koro, which are represented as uh, sort of a, a, a pathological fear that the genitals are being sucked into the body and that it will kill you, uh, ghost sickness in, in North America. These types of, of cultural explanations for mental illness that seem to themselves be the, the cause of the mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so brain fag syndrome becomes one of these. And brain fag syndrome is uh, identified first by Raymond Prince, who's a Canadian psychiatrist. He came to Nigeria in the late 50s specifically to work with, with Tom Lambeau and to look at the sort of relationship between culture and psychopathology. That's what he was there to do as a transcultural psychiatrist. Uh, and he starts to identify uh, what he comes to call brain fag. He actually didn't coin it. The, the, the students who came to him coined it. But what brain fag is, is, is characterized by is uh, particularly students were the subject population that Prince identified. They would come and say, look, uh, I can't think straight. I can't read anymore. Uh, I can't uh, function normally. I'm having all these weird somatic sensations burning and tingling in my head up and down my arms it's driving me crazy uh i I think something's really wrong with me this became called brain fag it was short for brain fatigue and the notion that prince came up with was that this was being caused primarily by this transition that nigeria was experiencing from sort of colonial backwater to modernizing independent or, or moving towards independence anyway at this time state and he ultimately argued that brain fag was essentially being caused by a, a, a conflict between what he called the Nigerian personality and, and the modernizing processes of a decolonizing independent Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, that this is what's causing this um, because Nigerians are sort of not culturally suited for the types of educational endeavors that they're undertaking. That's what Prince, the Canadian psychologist, mm-hmm. psychiatrist, said. Uh, now, I've never found anything from Lambo or Asuni, you know, the very first generation of Nigerian psychiatrists who worked closely with Prince, actually, um, saying anything particularly about brain fag. But by the 1970s, there are significant, uh, significant critiques of the brain fag etiology coming out from Nigerian psychiatrists who are arguing that there's nothing that really indicates that brain fag is culturally bound in any way whatsoever, right? So there are are articles written basically indicating that there's no way to identify a Nigerian personality as distinct from any other group's personality using any sort of personality indicators that have scientific merit, right? Uh, there are studies saying, you know, Prince identified this these symptoms to subgroups of student populations, but you actually see these symptoms in all kinds of other non-student populations as well. He just doesn't call it brain fag when it happens in non-students. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all kinds of studies that say we see these symptoms, the symptom cluster, in people kind of all over the world, right, in other parts of Africa. Uh, there have been studies about, you know, brain fag in Papua New Guinea. And largely, Nigerian psychiatrists have been pretty critical of the notion that there is a culture-bound entity called brain fag syndrome. That said, brain fag syndrome was used in the DSM-IV as a discrete culture-bound disorder in the, in the uh, glossary on, on culture-bound disorders. It's been removed in DSM-5, which has a very different structure for how it indicates uh, cultural expressions of, of, of psychological uh, disorder. Um, but, but yeah, but that's the story on brain fag. Now, that said, by the 80s, you are starting to see some Nigerian psychiatrists who are kind of critiquing the notion that there are these universal disorders, or at least that the universal disorders that we use 
are the appropriate you know units of of psychological disorder. So in the conclusion of the book, I talk about um, uh, Roger Macanjuola's work on Odeori, which is a, a culturally distinct. Uh, a disease entity to Yoruba people of southwestern Nigeria. Uh, Odeori uh, translates to hunter of the head, right? And it's it's a, a longstanding, you know, uh, old uh, uh, psychological disorder in uh, among the Yoruba people in Nigeria that's that's characterized in, in a lot of ways by similar symptoms, right? Um, ringing sensation in the ears, uh, somatic crawling sensations in the body. Uh, difficulty thinking, sort of fuzzy-headedness, insomnia, these types of issues. Uh, the explanatory factor for Odeori in Yoruba, uh, in, in the Yoruba worldview, is that uh, it's caused by a worm that enters into your body, most likely through the ear, and then it just sort of crawls around inside your, your body. And that can be naturally occurring, or it could be sort of placed there through witchcraft machinations, other things like that. But um, so Macanjuola did a study in the 80s where he took uh, a bunch of different people who were easily identified as having Odeori by traditional healers in Yorba land and, and, and took them to, well, they were actually already patients in a psychiatric hospital uh, at Ife. And he uh, uh, got their diagnosis from the psychiatric hospital. 30 patients easily identifiable as Odeori in Yorba context got I can't remember the exact number, 10 or 11 different diagnoses uh, in the psychiatric hospital, ranging from like paranoid schizophrenia down to just, you know, mild cases of depression or something to that effect. Now, when uh, these patients were treated in the, uh, in the psychiatric hospital, uh, McInjewell found that some of the symptoms went away, particularly symptoms associated with the disorder that they were diagnosed with in the psychiatric hospital. So, uh, some hallucinations would go away if they were sort of hallucinatory schizophrenics or, or whatever psychological symptoms. But a lot of the somatic complaints, the, the itching and the burning and the vision symptoms, things like this, they didn't go away with uh, with with uh, psychotherapeutic treatments in the psychiatric hospital. And so Mac and Juola concluded, you know, I think a little tongue in cheek, uh, <laughs> of course, but the idea being that you know we we fall back on the notion that schizophrenia and depression are the universal disorders. Who's to say that Odeori is not the universal disorder that gets identified as schizophrenia or depression or all these other things in different cultural contexts? So, um, and that's that's a product of a later time period. Whereas mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, the sort of the the edges of the universal model are kind of fraying for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, in chapter five, you turn to the way that that universal model and all of the other things that Nigerian psychiatrists took with them and brought into Nigeria in the mid-century encountered so-called traditional healers and Mm -hmm. the context in which... um, And so I'm wondering how Nigerian psychiatrists fashioned themselves in their work in relationship to these so-called traditional healers and the context in which they simultaneously worked. Yeah, I mean, this is a very complicated question, right? Mm-hmm. As you're suggesting, that chapter is dealing with the ways that Nigerian uh, psychiatrists position themselves vis-a-vis traditional healers. And I think one of the really important things to point out at the outset here is that in, uh, two things. One is calling anyone a traditional healer is a little, mm-hmm. a little bit of a, you know, a strange uh, way to do this because it implies that there are, are non-traditional healers or something. <laughs> I mean, the Western psychiatrists are coming from a tradition the same way that mm-hmm. the 
the the healers in Nigeria are coming from a tradition, right? It's just that in the context of Nigeria from the 1950s on, the traditions that indigenous healers are using uh, are locally tried and true, right? They're locally respected. They have legitimacy because they've worked there for a long time for people. Uh, The practices that the Western uh, trained psychiatrists are bringing in aren't necessarily as uh, culturally translatable, uh, they are seen as the the sort of outside alien way of doing things, and this is you know this is problematic in any sort of scientific or medical endeavor, right? But it's particularly problematic for something like psychiatry, where uh, where cultural uh, cultural buy in is really important, right? Where it's well recognized that the relationship between the therapist and the patient really kind of needs to be one of trust, right? Uh, in order for this to work very well. Uh, and then sort of the way the, the, the Western-trained psychiatrists think about it. So what they're dealing with really is the, the clear understanding that in, if they're actually going to try to provide uh, effective psychotherapeutic care for Nigerians in a way that had not been attempted really under the colonial regime, they're going to have to figure out a way to make the methods that they believe in, that they have studied, that they think are effectual, they have to find a way to get Nigerians to buy into it with them, Right. Uh, either through explaining what they do in local cultural terms that are appropriate mm-hmm. or through bringing in some of the indigenous ideas into the way that they uh, practice their sort of Western-trained psychiatry. And they go about this in a number of ways. Lambo may have been among the most um, optimistic about the possibilities for uh, Western-trained psychiatrists and indigenous healers, traditional healers, to work together. Uh, at RO Hospital, where he had uh, sort of been the founding uh, medical superintendent, he had uh, promoted what was called the RO Village Scheme, which was a, a, a project whereby uh, Nigerians would come to the hospital, but instead of getting inpatient treatment, right, where they had a bed in a large ward or whatever, if you think once over the cuckoo's nest or something like that, it was a very different model. He had Nigerian patients living in a local village nearby the hospital. Uh, they would pay rent to live in the homes of villagers. Uh, they would maybe get some some therapy at the hospital during the day, but mostly the therapeutic experience was about living in the uh, in the village environment, monitored right and and sort of controlled. But the idea was try to try and replicate some sort of normalcy for these patients. This is one of the the first uh, things that Lambo did that got him international renown was to sort of set up this village scheme. He wasn't the first to do this type of thing, but he got a lot of attention for it. Now, part of that process of having a, a sort of normalized village scheme system would be to provide the type of healing that patients there expected. And so that meant bringing in uh, indigenous healers, right, to work with the patients because that's what patients thought they needed. That's what they felt was going to make them uh, better, so he worked with uh, indigenous healers in this village setting. He thought it was therapeutic for the patients, and he also thought that through observation and communication with indigenous healers, there could be a better interaction between himself and indigenous healers. He could learn things that could then be used to provide better western based uh, psychiatric care um, and so he was very optimistic about that. Others were not quite so optimistic, right? So Talani Asuni, who was the second Nigerian to get uh, a psychiatric specialty from Dublin, and he came back and worked with Lambeau, took over our hospital when Lambeau went to the University of Abaddon, very uh, uh, renowned psychiatrist in his own right. 
he was much more critical of the of the practices of traditional healers and the capacity for them to be incorporated into uh, a sort of orthodox psychiatric framework. Uh, he was very concerned about some practices by uh, traditional healers that he thought violated medical ethics that he learned, things like chaining people up to logs or using uh, using medicinal treatments without any kind of dosage or uh, regimen, things like this that could be very dangerous for patients in his view. And so he argued that, that you know, that that's pretty problematic. Um he also argued, right, that it would be really difficult to to integrate these two things because, basically, from his perspective, the Western-trained psychiatrists were going to have to be primus inter paris, right? So a Sunni uh, thought that, that, you know, that the Western-trained psychiatrists were ultimately going to have to be the one sort of in the sort of uh, paternalistic position here of being the gatekeeper, as the, the chapter is called Gatekeepers of the Mind, mm-hmm. of making, making decisions about what knowledge is good and what knowledge is not good, what practices are ethical and appropriate and which ones aren't. And he argued, you know, first of all, that Western psychiat- Western-trained psychiatrists should do this, right, because it's part of their training and ethics to do it, and he absolutely believed it was the right thing to do. But he also argued, right, that, that – uh, that if you engage in that relationship, you're pretty significantly changing what the traditional healing process is. You're changing maybe the practices that they're able to engage in, and you're certainly changing the way that that group of people is perceived as legitimate and sort of sovereign in their knowledge, right? And that could have really damaging implications for their efficacy going forward uh, in terms of gaining trust and being able to be effective. So he was very much more of the mindset that that these two systems, they might both need to exist. In some ways, it would be complementary. But the idea that they would be integrated at any point in the future uh, didn't seem particularly likely to him. And in a lot of ways, that's a that's a conflict that continues to be played out, not just in Nigeria, but in in, in all over the world, right? With between sort of orthodox Western uh, Western derived psychiatric techniques and more folk medicine practices. Mm-hmm. Turning to Chapter 6, um, the title is kind of self-explanatory, and I'm going to f- frame my question right along those lines. You call it the paradoxes of psychoactive drugs. So would you like to tell our listeners a few of the paradoxes that you identify and why they arise? Yeah, so there are paradoxes in in, in a couple of different ways, right? I, I call the paradox um Largely because what you have here is, in the context of psychopharmaceutical drugs that are developed to treat major mental illnesses, you have an underlying notion that these have the capacity to be sort of universal, right? They're, they're drugs. They, they affect the body, mm-hmm. right, in a way the psychiatry hadn't uh, previously really been able to uh, to entirely buy into, right? Um, so there's... There, so. From the, from the perspective of Western-trained psychiatrists, these psychopharmaceuticals, by which I mean drugs to treat major mental illnesses like schizophrenia, and particularly in depression a little bit later, anxiety symptoms, right? Uh, they create the context to really sort of illustrate the sort of universal underlying similarity of these conditions, right? Because these drugs should work everywhere at the same time. Uh, at the same time, these drugs become really complicated to administer in the context of Nigeria. They've been complicated everywhere to administer. Uh, so we get in the context of Nigeria drugs that 
that Nigerian psychiatrists argue have been really, really useful and beneficial for treating mental illnesses, but only in very specific ways. So there's major concern from the 40s and 50s, right, that there's not much of a drug culture historically in Nigeria other than sort of alcoholic beverages in the South. Uh, at the same time that psychopharmaceuticals are entering the markets, you're also seeing an increase in all kinds of other illicit drugs that are coming in from, uh, from around the world, marijuana, for example. Uh, amphetamines, uh, you know, even harder drugs, cocaine derivatives and, and heroin and all these types of things uh, later on. Um, and so the concern is, right, which drugs are good and which ones are bad and what makes drugs good and what makes them bad. So many Nigerian psychiatrists are sort of arguing on the one hand that these drugs can be really useful for treating mental illnesses, right, if they're administered by doctors. They also argue that sometimes people are using these drugs, uh, you know, sort of, personally, to self-medicate, to deal with problems that they're dealing with in their own lives, right, that are, that are caused by the transitions that Nigeria is undertaking that partly allow for things like psychiatric care and, and treatment with drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also paradoxes in the sense that, uh, that the, the drugs don't necessarily always work the way uh, universally that they're supposed mm-hmm. to, right? There have been lots of studies over over more recent times, it's sort of differences in metabolic rates and all these other things can affect the ways that drugs affect individual bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the critiques that comes out is that the sort of clinical studies for psychopharmaceuticals still overwhelmingly take place amongst uh, sort of Western populations, not amongst Africans, and that can affect the, the, the way that those drugs work on Africans. A third paradox is that these drugs do provide the, pas- the possibility for uh, for. Uh, treating mental patients, but over time, they become sort of the baseline fallback option for treating patients. And so you start to see a lot of Nigerian psychiatrists, particularly from the 80s, after the economy sort of declines um, and the state sort of takes a step back from sort of expanding these types of social programs, that the only thing that psychiatrists can really do is give people drugs because they don't have the resources, the staff, anything to do what they would consider to be potentially much more productive psychotherapeutic uh, uh, processes, right? Um, so there are a variety of paradoxes there that make the drugs, the drug situation sort of a double-edged sword um, for how psychiatry operates in Nigeria. And I sort of conclude in that chapter making the point that this is one of the ways that we see the Nigerian case dovetailing with more global responses to psychopharmaceuticals. Uh, this is a similar discourse to what we see in the United States, right? And, uh, you know, at what point? Are we, are we uh, over-prescribing drugs so as opposed to dealing with uh, social problems in a much more uh, broad-based way? Mm-hmm. We're just about out of time. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to tell me about um, regarding your book? Oh, wow. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that question. <laughs> um, I can't think about, of anything particularly. Well, yeah. then why don't you tell me what you're working on now and what's next? Okay. So what's next is uh, is moving a little bit away from the sort of central focus on issues of health medicine and psychiatry, but, but still very much emphasizing this relationship between the global and the local and how Nigerians are fitting into a broader world history. What I'm working on now is a history of Hajj, uh, the Nigerian pilgrimage to Mecca in the 20th century. And ultimately, deals with a lot of the same types of issues. We're still dealing with migrant populations over a long period of time uh, and sort of integrating them into broader narratives 
about this thing that we recognize as being transnational uh, and sort of global for a long period of time, but that I don't think we really always think about uh, Africans as participating in, and certainly not necessarily Nigerians. Although at points in the past, Nigeria has sent one of the largest contingents, national contingents, to the Hajj uh, throughout much of the 1970s, for example. So what this project is, is trying to do is look at this question of local and global and how the national plays into it through a, a, another different lens here. It's pretty preliminary right now, but the sort of going argument that I have right now is that the Hajj becomes uh, one of these tools by which the uh, the national entity of Nigeria sort of uh, tries to legitimize itself, right? So the Hajj recognizes transnational. It's been going on from the area that is Nigeria several hundred years, right? But in the course of the 20th century, it gets very heavily controlled. Uh, how people go on Hajj is a matter of governmental importance, and it's a matter of governmental importance not just for Nigeria but for all states. It's heavily regulated on an international level. And so even as the Hajj grows, more and more people going on it every year increasingly have to go with a passport that says they come from a particular country uh, and they're sort of engaged with the this, this, this sort of nation state as an entity in order to do this thing. Um, and so that's the question that's sort of interesting to me. How does that happen? How does that change over time? What is the sort of tension and complementarity that goes between this transnational process and national processes that are taking place uh, in Africa in the 20th century. That sounds fantastic, and I look forward to reading it. Um, (laughs) Thank you for joining us today on New Books in Medicine. My guest has been Dr. Matthew Heaton. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, too. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Bye.